Happy Halloween, dear listener. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. And welcome to Tape Heads. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape, or two or three, from my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch them, and then we talk about them. It is the spooky season, is it not, Lindsay? Oh, it's super spooky. Last time, Lindsay did The Witches, Mm -hmm. and now it's my turn. And as you may recall, way back on episode 22, you shocked the podcasting world. When you pulled a little triple feature on our listeners. <laughs> Aw. Mostly I just wanted to make Sean suffer. We watched three Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. Yep. And I and I said I'm fine with it, knowing that I would bide my time until Halloween rolled around and I could pull this little stunt. <laughs> you just wanted me to watch more horror movies with you. We watched quite a few horror movies together, but this was an exceptional case. Because we watched three entries from the Halloween series. Three entries that I think make up a perfect trilogy, or trilogy, if you will. (laughs) Or trilogy, whichever you prefer. (laughs) Of course, the original John Carpenter classic, Halloween, from 1978. Rick Rosenthal's direct follow-up, Halloween 2, from 1981. Mm-hmm. And going way forward to those Kevin Williamson 90s for Steve Miner's Halloween H2O 20 years later. Skipping over a few sequels. We're skipping three through six, and, and we'll talk about this. I mean, you said they essentially don't... This makes a perfect trilogy. The other ones don't really matter, right? Because they don't quite sync up with the same canon set by the first film. We can get into it later. Okay, um, okay. We can, Maybe we can get into it when we're between 2 and H2O, but this is something that I've often talked with uh, people about, that uh, the Halloween series is interesting because you can kind of pick and choose what's actually canon and what's actually in the continuity Because a lot of weird things go on with this series. I mean, you've got the original, which is very much an independent film. I mean, it's John Carpenter and his producer and then-girlfriend Deborah Hill that just created this thing. Mm. This $300,000 movie that's about a guy in a mask killing babysitters, and it surprisingly becomes this beloved enormously uh, successful movie. $47 million in the U.S. box office in yeah. the 70s. That's really interesting that he created it with his girlfriend. I didn't know that. Whenever I hear about this movie or I think about this movie, I just think of John Carpenter. Yeah, Deborah Hill is a huge part of this. Um, she co-wrote the script with him. I think a lot of the iconic things about this series she had a big hand in. Um, and then there's also the producer side of things. There's people like Mustafa Akkad and all these other names that kind of, you know, help steer the ship, for better or worse, through mm-hmm. a lot of these Halloween movies. But the series is interesting because you have one and two, which we're covering on the show, obviously, that are very much directly linked. Yeah, because they, they take place over the same night. Yeah, they're set on the same night. A lot of the same creative personnel. John Carpenter and Deborah Hill are still very much involved in the second one. Huh. Same That's cinematographer, Dean Cundy. John Carpenter is still helping out with the music. He uh, even directed some of the scenes in the second one. Then you get into some weird stuff, three through six, and H2O is interesting because it's sort of picking up and saying, we're going to pretend that three through six didn't happen. We've got Jamie Lee Curtis back for the first time since two. Like, let's make, you know, the Halloween three that never really happened. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me about your experience with these movies. Had you seen any of them prior to our marathon this week? I'm sure that I've seen the first one and the third one. Not the third one. I'm thinking of it as a trilogy now. And I've seen the first one and H2O. You had not seen Halloween 2. I don't believe so. It did not feel familiar to me. But I know my mom had made a point of sitting my brother and I down and having us watch Halloween. It's I feel like it's a rite of passage to watch the first Halloween. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure she had seen it, you know, high school and later in college in the 70s when this came out. And so she had seen it in the, drive, the drive-in theater, I'm pretty sure. Does she remember it being a big cultural moment the oh, yeah. first Halloween. Yeah, and I think that's why she thought it was important that we watch it cuz she had this like set of movies that she would walk us through as we aged. 
Yeah, the original Halloween is interesting. I, I've mentioned it on other episodes, like our Friday the 13th episode, but it's very much the first really popular slasher movie mm-hmm. that inspired so many imitators and sequels. And yet, it's more along the lines of something like Psycho, where it depends so much on suspense, and there's very little on-screen blood or violence. Yeah, that was something that kind of surprised me, because I remember it being more violent. I think that it's sort of this theater of the imagination sort of thing, and it holds up to this day, in part, because you're left feeling like you watch this intensely violent thing, but it's really just... That suspense and that perfect pacing Mm. that kind of, you know, builds your way up to it. Well, H2O makes up for some of the lack of actual violence. Yeah, I'd say (laughs) 2 and H2O are very violent Oh, yeah, 2 as well. 2 is extremely violent. Of these three films, I'd argue 2 might be the most violent. But we'll see. That dumbwaiter in H2O is pretty violent, too. (laughs) Uh, So let's, let's kick things off with the first Halloween. It's 1978. John Carpenter is hot off the success, well, relative success, of a movie called Assault on Precinct 13, mm-hmm. about a bunch of cops holding down their station from bad guys trying to get in. Kind of a diehard scenario, okay. a little bit. And he's approached by these producers to basically make this movie called The Babysitter Murders. He and Deborah Hill, That's all, that was kind of the basic pitch, was... We want to make a horror movie where babysitters are getting killed. That was the whole idea. Sounds great. Sounds great. And it somehow became great just through this process of like, oh, let's set it at Halloween. Let's have, let's bring in sort of this high pedigree actor, Donald Pleasance, to play the doctor to uh-huh. sort of give it some legitimacy. And let's find all these interesting actors like young Jamie Lee Curtis. This is her first big role sort of like through some strange magical alchemy this became in many ways like a perfect horror and suspense film i was asking you about this before we started recording but what are the things that come to mind when you think halloween definitely a big kitchen knife a creepy white mask and it's especially creepy because it doesn't really... You kind of know that his face probably isn't moving underneath, but it really, even even if he were smiling or grimacing, you just don't see any of that. It's totally immobile. So the, that, the kind of like that ex- obscuring mask is super creepy. And then the music. The music just gets stuck in my head every single time I see this damn movie. (laughs) One thing about the music is I think it's just one of the greatest pieces of music ever written for Mm -hmm. a film. I think it's right up there with John Williams' scores for Jaws and Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. I think it's just such an iconic piece of music. Such an interesting choice. Um, again, composed by John Carpenter, which is just amazing. Mm-hmm. He wears so many hats on this movie. A little fun fact about the mask. Uh, well, actually, these first two films, it's the same mask, even though it looks quite a bit different because it's different actors wearing it in different circumstances. Well, and how many years apart were those films again? They were three years apart. So that mask could have aged a bit. Apparently it was under Deborah Hill's bed and she was a heavy smoker, so it actually yellowed a little bit. So it looks a little that's why it looks a little grosser in the second one. But interesting fun fact is that mask was actually a mask of William Shatner that they spray painted white and changed the eye holes. Yeah, there was originally like a Captain Kirk mask. (laughs) And they tried out a bunch of different masks, including like a clown mask and like a creepy pumpkin mask. But the William Shatner mask was deemed the creepiest. I guess I could kind of picture a young William Shatner going around and killing sexy babysitters. I wonder if he ever got any royalties for that. I don't think so. Probably not. (laughs) So this movie, just right off the bat, is... Uh, opens with this incredibly iconic score with this incredibly iconic opening credit sequence of this pumpkin. Oh yeah. It's just a it's just a simple dollying in on a jack-o'-lantern credits and orange typeface aside it. They want you to know it's Halloween. Yeah, and it's just beautifully realized from the production design and Dean Cundy's just really atmospheric cinematography. And then we just go into this opening scene with uh, the murder of Michael Myers' sister. Like most 
horror movies, most classic horror movies, we get to see a naked girl die. And again, after she got some sexy business on, so she's being punished for her sexuality. Yeah, there's been a lot of, <laughs> there's been a lot of ink spilled over the this whole idea of the slasher as sort of a big prude. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because they, so essentially you're seeing th everything through Michael Myers' eyes, right? And you don't, they don't really reveal that it's a small child doing the murder, which makes it especially creepy once once it kind of like backs, the camera backs out and you see this child with a bloody knife. Because they shot it on these super wide anamorphic lenses, you pointed out when the hand reaches for the knife, you can't tell if it's an adult's hand or a child's hand. Or even if it's a man's hand, a woman's hand, nothing. Like, it's blurred, so you just see the form of a hand. And there's these little hidden cuts throughout. One of them is when he puts on the mask and it turns into the, the uh, eye holes. But mm -hmm. interestingly, I read that that was a happy accident that the hand is obscured and he goes for the knife, and that's actually Deborah Hill's hand. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Little cameo. Yeah, so the whole setup is basically that this child, this perfectly adjusted normal child, Michael Myers, one night just sort of cracked. Perfectly and... adjusted? <laughs> well, up until that point. Yeah, I just don't feel like he would have just cracked. Like, maybe his family didn't see the signs. I feel like this is the big difference between John Carpenter's original movie and the Rob Zombie remake. From... I haven't seen the Rob Zombie It's remake. not necessarily worth watching, but the remake really makes him just a cliched, like, oh, he was bullied a lot as a kid, and he had a terrible home life, and all this. It really kind of explains away yeah. why the way he is. I think, because what, what I'm thinking in my comment is essentially, like, there was, I don't know, I guess it's a nature versus nurture, like, he had a, a conceivably good home life, it looked like a clean, nice house, maybe some decent parents, you know, but there was something there, there was some kind of seed of something. Like, I don't really know if it was evil or anything necessarily like that, but I'm kind of wondering, like, you, usually serial killers kill animals, and things in advance like maybe there was something that his parents missed i think it's also an argument of michael myers versus the shape that's just sort of a term given to him in the later part of the movie when he has the mask and everything basically it's just the argument that kind of like jack torrance and the shining like is it the person or is it the spirit of the hotel oh interesting and that's kind of what that's kind of used as an explanation to say like why starting in the second film he's immortal and he can get shot in the head numerous yeah. times and still be alive set on fire and all that stuff yeah like is yeah. he really the boogeyman or is he just this messed up kid and i think over the course of these three films it kind of changed the films change their minds at you can kind of see that the vision changes a little bit. Yeah. Just like Jason Voorhees, it's very convoluted. I tend to side with the idea that Michael Myers, you know, is possessed by this evil inside of him. Interesting. And I think that, and up until that fateful Halloween night in 1963, he had been a normal kid. And, or there's the, you know, the, like the Rob Zombie interpretation where, you know, everyone treated him like garbage and, you know, the way that a normal serial killer would come of age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't really buy into the whole bullying aspect that Rob Zombie apparently pushed. I do feel like there's some kind of nature within this child that was there and then burst forth on that one night. It was triggered by something. Who knows what? So we pretty much pick up the main story of this movie 15 years later. So Michael Myers has been in an institution. Mm -hmm. His doctor, Sam Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance, has been looking after him and has basically come to the conclusion that this person is beyond saving... Well, he kind of determined that when he was six years old, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like that he, he spent many... He says that he spent many years trying to get through to him and then spent the the, la the latter years trying to keep him locked up forever yeah. when he realized that he was just evil incarnate. Yeah, because he has... There's this bit where he talks pretty decisively about how he when they when he spoke to him that first time after he, after Michael killed his sister, Donald Pleasance seems to kind of infer that he sensed the true evil and lack of real personhood in him and humanity in him at that moment. But maybe yeah. he just didn't accept it for a while. 
And apparently he spent much of his time at the hospital saying nothing and just staring not at the wall, but through the wall to this night and oh, a lot God. of a lot of grandstanding statements by our Dr. Loomis. And he's very dramatic. He's kind of like the hype man for Michael in all these movies because he kind of sets up like, oh, he's so crazy. <laughs> well, and he, he wants, he's the guy that makes you feel afraid, right? Yeah. Because he's the one telling you before you've quite, you, you get a bit of a, set, a setup, but he really gets that feeling of being on the edge. And he's been in the company of this person for 15 years, so he knows the threat level. Mm-hmm. And he carries a gun. <laughs> kind of unusual <laughs> for a, a, a doctor to carry a six-shooter, but he carries one because he knows that Michael Myers is on the loose. And he guesses correctly that he's headed to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois. Haddonfield, which when you look at it, looks a little bit like Halloween, the spelling. The shape of the word. I kind of feel like they did that on purpose. It could very well be. Um, It is set in Illinois, but was actually shot in Pasadena and West Hollywood. On some of these streets, uh, you'll notice that it's very green looking because they shot in summer and that there's carefully uh, placed leaves that they had imported and painted brown to scatter about. It really didn't look like fall. (laughs) I mean, it looked like California fall. It still looks really beautiful, though. Um, the um, Well, because they have these palatial estate homes. Like, these, these are the these, Hollywood suburbia, you know? Well, these tree-lined streets and just this idea of this kind of Norman Rockwell kind of idyllic exactly, setting. Exactly, yeah. And this is another big thing. I'm going to harp on these Rob Zombie remakes quite a bit because Aww. that's another thing that he kind of missed in his retelling of it. In his version, everyone is just, like, awful. Like, everyone is just, like, a redneck and kind of deserves to die. Like, everyone is kind of a psychopath in this world. weird. Which, again, sort of defeats the purpose, because Haddonfield is supposed to be this perfect place where nothing bad ever happens. Because you have these beautiful, pristine white homes and these happy families. Like, I think the idea that it's introducing is it could happen anywhere, regardless of how great you think your town is or how innocent you think it's people. Yes. Like, that's what makes it really scary. Although, these are some pot-smoking, sex-having teens. There's something innocent about all of that, though, It too. is, though. It's kind of like a rite of passage, especially when one of them is smoking pot in her car and then pulls over to talk to her sheriff dad. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of these kids? I mean, obviously, we've got Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, but then she's got two friends, and you had some thoughts about this, like... I think that what you said during the movie was, why is she friends with these girls? They suck. They're (laughs) terrible friends. They're really mean and rude to her. They treat her like garbage. But I guess that's why why she survives and they don't. Like, we're kind of made not to feel that sorry for them. And the other thing about the three of them, they don't look like they're in high school. Maybe Lori does. Lori was a teenager at the time this was filmed. She was 19. Yeah. But the other two definitely looked older. And when I say Lori, I mean Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. (laughs) They're interchangeable in my mind. I, I see what you're saying. I like these girls. I do realize that Annie in particular is really bossy and kind of has this attitude like, I'm supposed to be babysitting tonight, but here, take my kid. I'm going to go do this. It also seemed like stereotypical, that's what a teen girl talks like language, you know? On this watch of it, I had to remind myself that it was co-written by a woman because so much of the girl dialogue, and I'm guilty of this too in, in my screenwriting, is it just feels like a guy writing for a girl like oh yeah. what do girls do oh they say totally a lot or yeah things like but that. i think it's also sometimes it's hard to remember how you would have spoken when you were that age or you know it, it changes up it's yeah. also been a while so we don't necessarily know how all these teen girls were talking in the late 70s yeah we weren't alive yet. <laughs> yeah they said totally every other word well especially um well there's the two friends there's annie and linda Mm -hmm. And Linda is the one that says totally all the time. Is Linda the blonde one? Yeah. Okay, yeah. 
She was the most annoying, and she was the meanest. Oh, you thought so? Yeah, I thought she was more rude than the other one. Yeah, I guess Annie's... they were both super dismissive of Jamie Lee Curtis's ability to get a boy. Well, Lori is your typical good girl. You know, she's babysitting on Halloween night. Well, so she has the really perfect little bob hair, and she's yeah. got the button-up shirt on and stuff. She's very serious about schoolwork and wants to go get her books and stuff. You know. Whereas in other slasher movies, like even Star. Starting with the second movie in this franchise, I feel like there's this expectation to have like a kill every 10 minutes. Yeah, that was really the biggest flaw of the second one. Whereas in this one, it's all about the suspense and sort of building things up. And one great character moment with Lori is she's starting to notice that this guy in a white mask is popping up here and there. Like she'll look out the window and see him by, you know, the clothesline and everything. And one perfect character moment is when she's in class and she's daydreaming and looking out the window and she sees him and the teacher calls on her and she still has this perfect answer because she's the brain. It's kind of interesting because you can totally see where Friday the 13th was ripping this movie off because the girl that survives that film is a lot like Lori. Do you think so? I think she's a lot like Lori. Like she was the more serious of the campers. She was more concerned about the work she was doing and kind of paying attention to the, the camp leader and cleaning up in the kitchen after they had their little sort of party night, that kind of thing. Like, there's a definite connection there. At least I felt. And there's a lot to like about Lori. I feel like she's more relatable than her friends, I think, to the average person. And it's kind of nice because even though she plays this kind of sweet, studious girl next door, she's also, even in the first film, she's also pretty strong. And you see her fighting back and trying to survive, whereas you didn't really see that in her friends. They were just gone like that, you know? They didn't seem to have that will to survive that she had. It's it's interesting because the very first kill we get, we've been set up and set up and set up, and finally there's this moment when Annie gets in her car and she realizes it's fogged up. Yeah, that was really creepy. And it reminded me of my when I learned to drive and I was starting to drive by myself, my mom made a point of saying you always need to check the back seat to see if there's anyone there and i i wonder if that was partly because of this movie i feel like it's also just a classic urban legend you know the the car flashing its headlights behind you as someone is trying to rise up from the back seat oh yeah Another thing that's very odd comparing this film and Friday the 13th, which I believe had a higher budget than this, which is... Friday the 13th had a higher budget? I don't... That's insane because Friday the 13th looks so much worse. This this film's beautiful in comparison. Friday the 13th just looks very haphazard. Like, oh, we've got daylight. Let's shoot. Whereas this was shot by Dean Cundy, who went on to shoot Jurassic Park and Back to the Future. Uh... A real badass cinematographer. This is one of the first films, along with Rocky, to make use of the Steadicam or Panaglide. Uh-huh. So the camera kind of floats along beautifully. Oh, interesting. And, you know, this is not a movie to watch on VHS. Yeah, you kept commenting during this, different scenes. I think both this and Die Hard, which is also done with anamorphic lenses, like shot in Panavision, like you're missing like half the picture because these are wide movies where a lot of the action kind of creeps in from the shadows on the side of the frame. Yeah. Like, I think one of the worst parts was um, in the scene where Annie is killed and he pops up from the back seat. In our VHS copy, you don't even really see him pop up. You just hear the music go, and it's like, oh, I guess something happened. And then he comes (laughs) into the frame. And I can't imagine how especially Dean Cundy would have felt seeing this on videotape. He probably didn't even bother to watch it. Up until the point that DVD came along, I bet all cinematographers are like, I can't watch my stuff on VHS because it's just a total bastardization of what I've done. But yeah, you, it, Sean, you were commenting over and over again throughout both <laughs> both the first two films. You didn't notice, it didn't seem like there was as much... Oh no, you said pan, there was a thing where you pointed out pan and scan in the third one. Too. Yeah, they, I mean, the, the pan and scan is even worse where they've put in... I'm I'm assuming without any input from the cinematographer, just these fake kind of digital looking moves over to the part of the frame that was cut out. Yeah. So it just like these artificial camera moves are put in on something that was just like a one-er, you know, that was yeah. just one 
steady static shot it now is like the camera's moving all over the place after the fact so yeah i mean it's a pretty simple movie pretty low body count a lot of just dripping with atmosphere yeah. and shadows and john carpenter's great score i did toward the end i was yelling at it a lot and why is that, Lindsay? It was because they kept just taking for granted that he was dead or he wasn't a threat. And they just, Jamie Lee Curtis would walk away leaving a knife right next to him when she had to have realized all she did was knock him out. Well, you gotta get to 90 minutes. Jeez, <laughs> oh, that was driving me crazy. Like, it's like you've seen this guy get up multiple times when you thought he was done with. Just at least take the knife away. You know, Halloween gets a pass for me on that with the multiple killings because I feel like it started all these cliches and I just like Jamie Lee Curtis so much that I... mean, I, I love her, but... That I kind of forgive her when she stabs him and drops the knife and walks away. Like, it's kind of okay when she does it, but for some reason I have no sympathy for Alice doing it in Friday the 13th. Oh, jeez. Th that's the thing that just drives me crazy. But then again, I guess we're supposed to assume these people are going through shock and all other kinds of things. So maybe they're not in their right minds. So after the friends get killed off, oh, we didn't mention Linda has a kind of crazy death scene too. I mean, her boyfriend is killed downstairs. Pinned yeah. to the wall with the butcher knife. Like Mike... halfway up the wall. That's the first sign that Michael Myers has superhuman strength. Yeah. And that he may in fact be the boogeyman. That was one thing I didn't think about until later. Because I was kind of annoyed that the guy was halfway up the wall and stuck to the wall with a butcher knife. Because I was just thinking Michael wouldn't have been able to do that. But in hindsight, I suppose if they're trying to make him out to be the boogeyman, maybe the boogeyman could do that. Laurie doesn't even know who's after her until the second movie. Yeah, that's true. That's why they only call him the Boogeyman. Yeah. And also with Linda's death, that's another kind of iconic scene where Michael comes in with the ghost sheet over him and the glasses. Mm -hmm. And he strangles her with the phone. Yeah, that was really gross because she thought her boyfriend is coming back to have sex with her. So it's basically a cat and mouse between Laurie and and michael she does a pretty good job protecting the kids she's babysitting yes but dr loomis shoots michael six times uh, you can tell he's really into shooting michael like this is a doctor that really wants to kill his patient yeah <laughs> that's his arc is uh at first being sympathetic to him and then screaming about how evil he is and shooting him six times and he really sounds like he's the madman in this whole Yeah, thing. definitely. He's, he's lost himself a little bit to this case. And the movie ends, of course, with Michael Myers' body having vanished from the front lawn. In, uh, I mean, viewing this through our eyes today, your thought would be, oh, they're setting up a sequel. Yeah. But that wasn't the case, actually. They really intended to do only do one film. They had no intent for a sequel? That just wasn't something you really did then. I mean, it wasn't as common back then to come back for a second one. Interesting. And it was only after this was a gigantic hit that John Carpenter suddenly had pressure to do another one. And I think he finally worked out a deal where he was like, oh, well, I want to go off and do this movie, The Fog, and then, okay, I'll do Halloween 2. Interesting. By the way, no ads on this tape or on Halloween 2, but there are some ads for H2O, and we'll get to those later. Aww. Quite a few good ones, actually. And so, yeah, we we end Halloween, Michael Myers' body having disappeared. Mm -hmm. And where do we pick up in Halloween 2, Lindsay? Literally, they actually backtrack and you rewatch the end of the first film. And then it goes into a continuation of that night, and Michael kills a bunch more people, and Jamie Lee Curtis has the worst wig ever. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis had apparently cut her hair short. She had to wear a wig for the second movie, and it, it drove Lindsay crazy. Why didn't they just give a little bit more budget to the wig? It just looks movie. like a helmet. It doesn't even move. So I think the best way to describe Halloween 2, it's a movie that was intended to feel like a direct successor to the first movie, but it's clearly made by a different director and is clearly influenced by other slasher movies that had come out in the meantime. So what you're kind of left with is a movie that in a way sort of feels like a retread. Instead of being in the suburbs, you're now in a hospital. 
And because it's now the early 80s, instead of having this perfect pacing and having this perfect suspense, now you're having a lot of very vicious killings throughout. And that's, and it, it feels like they thought that would make it exciting, but I genuinely felt a little bored while we were watching this. I did not enjoy this anywhere near as much as the first one. I like Halloween too, but I hear what you're saying. I feel like in an attempt to make it more exciting to, you know, do the cliched bigger and better, more kills, more blood, more this, more that, it actually starts to feel repetitive, whereas I was gripped all the way through on the original yeah. Halloween. The first one just feels more thoughtfully written, whereas the second one, it's kind of like, okay, how else can we kill people? You know, it's, it's it, it was like they were kind of just cramming stuff in for their convenience to try and make something exciting rather than really thinking about how they could create a story arc for the film. It also seems a little bit of a loss to figure out what to do with our two returning characters, Dr. Loomis and Laurie, because mm -hmm. we pick things up, like you said, the moment that the first film ends. It's all on the same night. Laurie is whisked off to the hospital. Well, Dr. Loomis rushes around town trying to find Michael. And it kind of cuts between very clearly Michael targeting Laurie at the hospital and Loomis looking for Michael. And once again, both storylines converge at the very end. And this time, because we've already seen it all before, it's more just, oh, who's Michael going to kill this time and how? The the other thing that was weird to me was uh, they introduced this love interest for Laurie, and I felt like that was almost a waste of my time as a viewer too, because it didn't it couldn't culminate in anything. It didn't really up the stakes because they didn't have any chemistry, and there was no time for them to build a relationship between the two. So when they kill him off, you I, I just didn't really care. Uh, you're talking about Lance Guest as Jimmy Lloyd. Yeah. That charismatic uh, orderly. Yeah. Oh, is he an orderly or a paramedic? Maybe he was a paramedic. Well, yeah, because he reported on scenes. So I guess yeah. he's a paramedic. Interestingly, the director, Rick Rosenthal, who did not have full control over this film. That's another big difference here is there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen this time. He originally wanted the ending to be Jimmy is alive and he's in the hospital with Lori. They even shot that ending. Yeah. Where they like ha they sort of hug it out at the mm -hmm. end, and they think it's they're gonna everything's gonna be fine, but because they just cut that scene the last time we see Jimmy, is he dies from a head concussion that he received from slipping <laughs> on all the blood, which interestingly Roger Ebert who gave a four-star review to the original hated Halloween too, but the one thing that he gave it was that. He thought it was clever to kill someone off by slipping on the blood of oh another murder god. victim, which is something that happens in this movie. <laughs> oh god. And they still make sure that we get to see some naked bodies. Oh they yeah. didn't skimp on that. They always make sure there's somebody naked. Unless you're in the 90s Kevin Williamson era with H2O. Oh yeah, that's true. Do you feel like it's a jarring switch to this movie, or do you feel like it is what they intended, sort of in, like, the second half of that original story? I mean, it is what they intended, but I just, at the same time, it's also very jarring. It's weird to have something take place in the same night where you're showing the original footage of Jamie Lee Curtis, and then you're showing her again with this awful wig, so she doesn't even look the same. So it just doesn't, it just doesn't feel like the same night and the pacing and the feel of the film is so different from the first one it it kind of made me think they should have just made it on another night they had should have had it occur sometime later it's an inventive idea to pick up from where the last one left off but it just doesn't seem to be a they didn't execute it well enough the hospital setting i think is very interesting i think it offers a lot of opportunities for suspense especially because this is the darkest hospital in the world and yeah there's no lighting in it's this lit hospital. to be very shadowy so and no one works in this hospital either there are not <laughs> very many employees how are they keeping people alive and where are all the other patients i have so many questions about this hospital yeah, it's, it's a very convenient hospital for Michael Myers to stage the second half of his Halloween massacre. 
a lot of nurses and paramedics to slice his way through on his way to Lori, who, in a big plot twist that was not intended when they did the first film, mm-hmm. who is Michael to Lori, Lindsay? Her brother. What do you think of this plot twist? I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, it's a stretch, but I kind of like it because it works so well in H2O. That's the thing. I'm I'm on the fence about it because on the one hand, I think that one Halloween, the original, works the best in the randomness of it. Yeah. That this kind of possessed man just reports back to the scene of his original crime and kills whoever's there. It takes the threat away, not the threat, but the kind of the scariness away when he's targeting family, not that he'll just kill anyone. Mm-hmm. Granted, that gets looser in some of the other sequels, but I feel like it's sort of it's sort of a strange plot twist. I mean, it, you could almost compare it to Darth Vader being Luke's father, yeah. you know, in the sense that you know when they shot that first Star Wars movie, they did not have that in mind at all. I don't care what anyone says. And it does feel a little tacked on in this movie. And I, the only yeah. reason that I like it is because of what H2O did with it. But that wasn't until 1998. Exactly. And as far as this film goes, it doesn't really do much for it. We find out in the last 20 minutes of the movie that they're related. And Laurie Strode never learns of this. Yeah, she's not really aware of it. And her character arc in this film is she's conked out on painkillers for most of the movie Mm -hmm. while Michael Myers wanders around killing people, and the whole climax is just her running away. And they could have just as well had it that, you know, he was going after her again because he doesn't let anyone get away, you know? It's, why in this film did she need to be his sister? I think that honestly what it was is they just didn't want it to be that much of a retread of the first movie. I, yeah, I guess so they could feel like they're introducing something new Mm -hmm. other than the setting. And there's another awkward scene in the film where they go to this classroom that Michael Myers has broken into and he's spelled out the word Sam Hain or Sawin on the wall of the, Mm -hmm. on the chalkboard. And this is supposed to set up some sort of, like, Celtic subplot (laughs) that is investigated in some of the lesser sequels in this franchise. But again, it's like, it feels very tacked on, especially considering that everyone involved thought this is definitively where the Michael Myers storyline ends. Mm -hmm. At least they thought that at the time, because they burn him to a crisp and they shoot him in the head multiple times. He seems pretty dead at the end of this movie. Yeah. And not only does he seem very dead, but Dr. Loomis seems very dead, too, because they're both engulfed in a fireball in the hospital. Yeah. What, does Dr. Loomis come back? Oh, yeah. So, let me, uh, let's take a little break from our, uh, trilogy here to talk about the movies that we're not covering. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, the very next year, which is a very interesting entry in this franchise because Michael Myers... Yeah, there is no Michael Myers in it. This is interesting because John Carpenter was still involved in 3 very much, and his idea was, okay, Michael Myers is dead, but let's keep making a new Halloween movie each year, and it'll be like an anthology series, where each year you just get an unconnected Halloween story, just set on Halloween. And the a case, good idea, seems like. It's fun, and it's kooky, and of course people hated it, because <laughs> one... They showed up to theaters expecting Michael Myers to be there, and two, it's just batshit crazy. It's about <laughs> it's about this Irish novelty company called Silver Shamrock in Northern California that makes masks that kill children, and they're powered by Stonehenge. And if that film had been a hit, we would have gotten a new crazy Halloween movie <laughs> like that every year. And as much as I love H2O and some of these other Michael Myers sequels, I kind of wish that 3 had been a big hit and we could have gotten more just totally unrelated crazy Halloween movies from John Carpenter and Deborah Hill and that whole camp. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. 4 through 6 are kind of their own separate trilogy where Michael is back, Dr. Loomis is back, they both survived this fireball. (laughs) No scarring whatsoever, I bet. Some scarring. Some some scarring. scarring. Okay. And Michael is tracking down the niece. Lori has died in a car wreck. What? 
it, so we're told. Oh, I see. Well, I, I see how that ties into H2O now. And basically, 4, 5, and 6 get progressively worse as they kind of circle the drain of, like, how can we keep coming up with ways for Michael to be relevant? How can we, you know, give him new things to do, new people to kill, new places to go? Mm-hmm. By the end of it, part six, which stars a young Paul Rudd, it, was, it had just gotten so convoluted. There was all these plot turns about runestones and Michael being uh, controlled by this Celtic cult. What? And Paul Rudd, what are you doing? Part six was so baffling and incomprehensible and so many loose plot threads. That brings us to H2O, where everyone involved is just kind of like, let's set the reset button. Let- 20 years later. Yeah. Um, at this point, Jamie Lee Curtis had an appetite to sort of come back to it. With John Carpenter was the original plan. Let's come back and make a proper sequel to Halloween 2 with the whole creative team back mm-hmm. in action. Okay. So that sort of catches us up to the present, 1998. (laughs) The present. (laughs) When we are treated to some very great VHS trailers. Halloween H2O, of course, came out in the Scream era. So we kick things off with The Faculty, of course, written by Kevin Williamson. Did you see this one? No. It's a high school. Josh Hartnett's there, as he is in H2O. (laughs) And would you know it? All those teachers are aliens. That's kind of a twist, though. You wouldn't expect them to be aliens. It's sort of an invasion of the body snatchers thing. Yeah. I remember it being kind of fun. It's a Robert Rodriguez joint. Mm Mm-hmm. Enemy of the State. We get a pretty sweet trailer for Enemy of the State with Will Smith. good movie. I like that movie. I've seen it many times on VHS. I feel like that's sort of becoming topical again, because it's very much like the NSA is watching you, Mm -hmm. and... I think it's always topical. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, the Water Boy, That's starring Adam Sandler. It's another movie I loved. That and Happy Gilmore. I, as a kid, I, my family, we were all very much into the Adam Sandler movies. I have nothing against the Adam Sandler trend of comedies in the 90s, but I will say it was very jarring to go from the Halloween 2 VHS to a movie that starts with ads for Adam Sandler movies. Seriously, for Waterboy. Like, Waterboy isn't a perfect setup to a horror movie. Speaking of Robert Rodriguez, our fourth ad is From Dusk Till Dawn to Texas Blood Money. Mm-hmm. If you didn't know that there was a sequel to From Dusk Till Dawn, that's okay. I think no one else knew either. It was a direct-to-video sequel with Robert Patrick. No real reason to see it, as I remember, except for some cool camera angles. They uh, they strap the camera to a safe wheel, so mm-hmm. when it gets turned around, the camera turns around. I don't know if that's really a good enough reason to go see a movie. Go see it for Danny Trejo and the cool camera angles, folks. And if that didn't whet your appetite enough for 90s direct-to-video sequels, we've also got Children of the Corn 5, Fields of Terror. (laughs) Which I never saw, but I resent right off the bat for the missed opportunity of calling it Field of Screams. Instead of Field of Dreams. That's what that movie should have been called. I've never seen it, but I feel like that should have been the first meeting. Like, Fields of Terror? Come on. Maybe they wanted to be taken seriously instead of having a pun in their title. If it was called Field of Screams, I would have seen it. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have (laughs) the most obnoxious one-two punch of ads. Super 90s and lame. Uh, from hot snowboarding director Warren Miller comes Snow Riders and Snow Riders 2, The Journey Continues. The, it's two Snow Riders, Snowboarders ads that come just before the movie, and it's like, did they really think that this movie was just filled with people that want to see other people snowboard? Well, I think that it's targeting just 90s kids. Yeah, like, the youth of so. today are into the X Games and snowboarding. And they, t- they did have a snowboarding uh, N64 video game. It's not just Snow Riders and Snow Riders 2. We're also treated to an ad 
for Free Riders, also from director Warren Miller. Are we supposed to know who Warren Miller is? I like, too, that these ads were advertising that they had great music, and we were both like, what is the music in the ad? This is bad. (laughs) From today's hottest new bands, but it doesn't actually list out the bands like you would for a soundtrack. Because they know you don't care who these bands are. They're nobodies. I'm going to take this opportunity to give one slight critique of H2O, which is a film that I will come out saying right off the bat that I love this film. But if it has one nick on its uh, armor, it does feature very prominently a song by Creed. (laughs) Uh, Multiple times. Creed gets so much shit. Uh, And I don't even necessarily hate Creed, but the moment it's on, I just can't help but kind of chuckle because Josh Hartnett and Michelle Williams are sitting in their sort of lover's nest. Yeah. And they hear something, and their radio, meanwhile, is just going, What's this life for? (laughs) (laughs) And there's a reprise of that song during the end credits also. Yeah, Creed was this era's Nickelback. I wouldn't go that far. You don't think so? Creed was cool at first, and then in hindsight, people were like, no, this is ridiculous. So when this movie came out, Creed was Nickelback at their peak, and then they, they, they fell from heaven. I mean, I'm sure when they landed Creed for the Halloween H2O soundtrack, they probably thought, oh, this is a big get for us. Oh, because they thought they were going to sell loads of soundtracks, and they probably did. I mean, I don't think that they were thinking... Creed was huge. I think that, well, Halloween sort of feels timeless, despite the fact that there's lots of 70s hair and stuff. I feel like one of the things that really dates H2O is this song. Yeah. No, and I and it, I feel like it's probably because they wanted to monetize, right? They wanted to sell product, which was soundtracks. But I want to get that out of the way just right off the bat, because I just gotta say, this is a great addition to this franchise, and especially after we'd sunk to the depths of Paul Rudd dressed as a monk running through yeah. tunnels in Curse of Michael Myers. So I didn't sink into the tunnels with Paul Rudd, but I did suffer through the second film. And this this was definitely much, much more enjoyable. Let me, let me tell you something. If you feel like you were suffering <laughs> during Halloween 2, you do not know what suffering is. Because... I have uh, I have curated this little trilogy for you that you can just jump straight from 2 to H2O. And doesn't it just feel seamless? Because we... Well, it feels like a purposeful trilogy. I think that they did the right choice in just saying, like, let's not pick up all these crazy plot threads from this sixth movie that nobody saw or cared well, about. they pick up one that she died in a car accident. Yes and no, because basically we pick up 20 years after the night that Halloween and Halloween 2 took place. Laurie Strode has sort of pulled a sort of witness protection sort of thing where she's faked her death and now she is the headmistress of a Northern California prep school and her name is Carrie Tate. And this is really far-fetched. I mean, I realize this is ridiculously far-fetched, but I buy into it because because Jamie Lee Curtis sells it to me. I treat this film as saying that three through six never happened in the sense that uh, she would care about the the child that he, she left behind because that's sort of the protagonist of like four and five is her daughter. Oh, it's her daughter. Yeah, I, I might have misspoken. It's Michael oh, Myers's niece. You said his niece, and so I wasn't really thinking about the fact that it would be her daughter. Yeah, so if four through six is about Uncle Mikey chasing down uh, Laurie's daughter, this is saying no, no, she that never had she never had a daughter, but she did have. Her beloved son Josh Hartnett okay. who goes to this school I see this was supposed to be a big reunion sort of almost like an apology for everything that had happened since Halloween 2 mm-hmm. even though I happen to love Halloween 3 but most people don't John Carpenter is supposed to come back uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is very interested in coming back Ultimately, they weren't able to... I think it ultimately came down to money with John Carpenter. He felt like he was owed a certain amount because he felt kind of gypped on not getting his fair share of the profits from the other Halloween movies. So they go to Steve Miner, who is a Friday the 13th alum, having directed parts two and three. Okay. Having some deal of success in the genre. And I think that he does a very good job, kind of... Bring it back more to 
not just having sort of the the trappings of the original movie, but also just sort of the suspense and mm-hmm. the pacing. This is a very, you know, carefully paced movie, once again, where we don't really get a lot of kills until the second half. It's also really polished. Like, one of the big differences between this one and the prior two are the fact that they had an orchestra do the theme instead of having just the simple piano playing. And the music is interesting, too, because originally there is this composer, very respected composer, John Ottman, who came in and did this full orchestral score... And they ended up just using bits and pieces of that because they didn't like the score. They felt it was not appropriate for the movie. They wanted something more like Scream. And so they actually ended up bringing in Marco Beltrami, who wrote the score for Scream, and actually taking cues from Scream and Scream 2 and jutting them into the movie. That's too bad because I feel like they... They spent a lot of time trying to make this movie, like using Creed and stuff, trying to make this something that really hit the moment that it was made instead of making something that's more timeless, like the first film. And another big thing, because there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen on this one, the mask was a big sticking point. Whereas the first two movies use the same mask, even though it Mm -hmm. looks different, this time we have like four different masks that are being used because they shot a big chunk of the movie with one mask that had very soft kind of muted features, Mm -hmm. almost like a blank face. And the producers were like, no, we don't like that mask. But at that point, they'd been shooting for three weeks. What? So you still see that mask throughout the movie, but they reshot at the cost of basically the budget of the first two Halloween movies, did massive reshoots to basically put in the second mask that you see for most of the movie, but also there's a CGI mask in some shots. And they also, in the opening of the movie, had to use the mask from Halloween 6. So you see four different masks throughout the movies, often changing between shots. And I didn't really notice it until it was pointed out to me. Yeah, honestly, I'm trying to think of what the mask looked like, and I didn't notice at all. Personally, it doesn't really bother me except for the CGI mask. It's during that moment when the kid is reaching into the garbage disposal, Mm -hmm. and he turns around and Michael's behind him. And it just looks very odd. It just kind of looks like... I did not notice. I think the big reason that I really like this movie um, is it kind of is all about Jamie Lee Curtis this time around. I feel like, well, she was very much sort of this victim in the first two movies, she's actually given a character to play. She's a mother, she's a heroine, and she's a badass. I kind of feel like when I watched this, I kept thinking of Sigourney Weaver in the Alien Aliens movies. Like, you've got this badass woman that's just going to fight and kill and do whatever she needs to do. And she's not perfect. She's a helicopter mom for sure because... Kind of an alcoholic. Definitely an alcoholic. There's There's a great scene that I just feel like is so pitch perfect where she's out to lunch with her, uh... Boyfriend. With her boyfriend, another teacher at the school, and she's having a glass of Chardonnay with lunch, no big deal, but while he's away at the bathroom, she orders another Chardonnay. And and the the waiter's really confused, because her glass is pretty much full. And she says, today, and she guzzles her Chardonnay and gets the second (laughs) one before he comes back from the bathroom. Like, that's just such a perfect character moment for this woman with PTSD. Little touches like that, like, that's what I wanted more of in Halloween 2, to, like, understand who this girl is beyond just being a final girl. Exactly. Like, I, th- I think the thing that I hate, not hated, but the thing that I disliked about the second film was that they treat her like she's just this victim. She's an object of Michael's desire to kill. Whereas in the third film, not the third film. You can call it the third film. <laughs> it feels like the third film. Whereas in H2O, she's actually this really active, realized character, and we get to know her and care about her even more. Whereas she didn't even know that Michael was her brother in the second movie, and it had no bearing on the plots whatsoever, that is what this movie is about. Is yeah. He's entirely about their relationship. Exactly. And it's interesting, too, because this film takes place, what is it, after Josh Hartnett's 17th birthday, the Halloween after, which was when the last film, when the first film took place. Yeah. It was that night. And so there's that connection there, too, that he's coming back when there's a new member of the family. And it just feels like throughout this movie, you mentioned how polished it is. It sounded, it seems like there's a desire, and I credit Jamie Lee Curtis with this, because 
she was a driving force in this movie. She really wanted to to reunite everyone, ideally with John Carpenter. And brought in her mom, Janet Lee. And Lay. brought in her mom, Janet Lee. And just this cast. I mean, you've got Michelle Williams, LL Cool J is <laughs> is fun as the comic relief. Joseph Gordon-Levitt gets a... It, gets an ice skate to the face. Yeah. And you get Nancy Stevens back as the nurse that's been in all three of these movies. I really liked that they had her in this, too, because it kind of brings in that continuity. When the John Ottman score is allowed to play, it's great. This beautiful orchestral arrangement of John Carpenter's theme. It's It just really feels like they're going for it. And <laughs> Can I also say it's kind of nice that LL Cool J doesn't die. He's not like the black guy that dies at the beginning. You Despite know? getting a bullet to the head, yeah. <laughs> which I guess well, just grazed him. I guess it grazed him or got his ear maybe and yeah. he just passed out. But then he comes back and you're just relieved. Yeah. I mean, I like this because it's entirely different than what where she was before, which makes sense if she's trying to escape from this past of hers and live an entirely new life as a new person. She has short hair now. Like, there, there are all these different things that she used to divide her. And I think one of the interesting things is a person that has PTSD and has this fear that she has, it makes sense that she would want to live as a headmistress in this private school that has it ha- has fences all around, has a gate, has a watchman twenty four seven. They kind of push the push me to the edge of where I'm willing to believe, but I'll make the jump because it really makes sense for her character to end up in this setting. And I feel like I kind of relate to the kids more this time. It could just be that it's a more modern movie, but you know, Josh Hartnett's upset because he doesn't get to go on the trip to Yosemite. It's like I, it's like, oh yeah, that's that seems like that'd be a cool thing to do on Halloween. It's like it's a bummer that he doesn't get to go when they intentionally stay behind. Mm-hmm. It's I guess it's really just two couples. It's Josh Hartnett, Michelle Williams, and their friends. Um, when they stay behind and you know have their little creed love nest <laughs> like that they in the basement of the school in the basement of the school with all the candles i remember being young and just thinking that is so cool oh God, that is so <laughs> that is so romantic <laughs> uh, you know there's just something about this setting that that i think that this is one, that i probably revisit this film the most out of the 3 just because it's just a fun and inventive setting for mm-hmm. a movie uh, the pacing is also much better than the second one was just it lost me and this built suspense it had I just felt so much more invested in it and it didn't lose my interest part way through yeah and I think you hit the nail on the head with just feeling invested in these characters like I didn't care about anyone at the hospital in Halloween 2 but by the time that we get to the really crazy kill scenes of this movie and they do deliver when they get there like with this whole sequence of the dumbwaiter where they're mm-hmm. going up and down and she gets her leg almost severed by the dumbwaiter. Like I'm more, you know, I'm concerned for this girl. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when in Halloween 2, I feel like it was more of a Friday the 13th style thing where it's like, oh, that was a cool kill. Oh, Michael really got him good that time. Yeah. And I think that that's not what Halloween is all about. And I think it's interesting too, like including Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, Janet Lee, who starred in Psycho. It's kind of acknowledging the films that come before it, even outside of this series. Yeah, a lot of nods within the series and outside. There's a nice moment with Janet Lee where she's by the psycho car and they very <laughs> tastefully bring up one of Bernard Herrmann's cues from uh, Psycho, a little musical flourish there. Yeah, and just a really polished movie. And it all comes down to, for me, the definitive ending of this franchise. Mm-hmm. Basically what it is is... Laurie has done the typical cat and mouse thing with Michael, stabbed him. He's obviously not dead, but they they load up his body into an ambulance, and then something amazing happens. And this is part of the reason that Jamie Lee Curtis wanted to do the movie, was to finally kill Michael, to finally face off against him. Oh, yeah. And it is such an amazing scene. Really one of the best endings of any horror film, where Laurie drives the ambulance off a cliff and has pinned Michael to a tree, 
and they have this moment where it almost seems like they're going to have this brother-sister moment. They're they're reaching out and almost touching hands. Yeah, and their eyes are connected and they're just looking into each other. And it, it's almost like they're seeing each other for the first time as siblings and kind of acknowledging that they have a blood connection, if not anything else. I mean, and it mirrors a moment earlier in, this, in the movie where, you know, when they are looking through the window at each other, one mm-hmm. of the great shots of this film... And she has this moment, and it's just such a great performance by Jamie Lee Curtis, where she pulls away and then just cuts off his head. Uh, Takes and, an axe. Yeah, with an axe. Just with one fell swoop. It's so badass. And I feel like in other films, they would have had her walk away, and then he would have just blown up with the car or something. But in this one, they make sure that you see her chop his head off. Yeah, and there's no, like, wrap-up or anything. There's no, like, two weeks later. It just, like... The original Halloween score comes up, like, literally off the John Carpenter CD for the original movie. So the first piece of music you heard in this trilogy is the last piece of music you hear here, except for Creed. And uh, (laughs) you hear her breathing, just this... Just like the first movie ended with Michael's breathing. And it just is the perfect bookend. They should have stopped here. But, of course, Halloween H2O was a big box office success. Pretty sure I saw it in theaters. It grossed more in unadjusted dollars than the original movie. Jamie Lee Curtis wanted so bad for this to be the end of the franchise. Really, everybody did, except the producers, the people who who stood to get money off of this. Yeah. Particularly, uh, you know, some of the people who'd been there since the beginning, like Mustafa Akkad, they even had it in the contract that, no, we need to plan on Michael coming back. Uh, Jamie Lee How Curtis, do you bring him back? Jamie Lee Curtis had to even sign sign off on this. And this is going to depress you so much when you hear about this. Oh, God. Is that Jamie Lee Curtis, in order to do this movie, in order to end the movie this way, they made it in such a way that Jamie Lee Curtis agreed to do a 30-second cameo in the next movie. Oh. Prove that he wasn't dead. And this is how they explain it away. In 2002, a little movie called Halloween Resurrection comes out, and it... Mm retcons the events of that powerful perfect ending by saying oh actually Michael took a security guard and he put his mask on him and he broke his larynx so she actually killed an innocent man there which completely ruins their moment but I think that that was the only way they could do this ending is that Jamie Lee Curtis had to say okay I'll show up and do this stupid thing in the next one but the silver lining is As a Halloween fan, I can decide what's continuity and what's not. All right. And I say that the series ends at H2O, and I suggest you do too, dear listener, and do not seek out Halloween Resurrection, which incidentally was directed by the director of Halloween 2, Rick Rosenthal. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, (laughs) I don't really like his work, so I guess I won't be watching it. So I guess we better wrap this thing up. Uh, should we take it movie by movie like we did with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Yes, and you go first. So, Sean, buy it, rent it, tape over it for Halloween. Buy it, of course. This is the definitive slasher. Not just one of my favorite horror movies, but really one of my favorite films of all time. If you just see one of these movies, of course see the original Halloween. Lindsay, what do you think? I think it's a buy it, actually. I I love the soundtrack. It gets stuck in your head. It's a great suspense film and I, I really like suspense my one of my favorite movies is Rear Window so I definitely feel like it's worth watching and watching again alright Sean Halloween 2 I'm gonna be a little hypocritical on this because <laughs> I spent a lot of this podcast bashing Halloween 2 but at the same time I have triple dipped on this film I own it on VHS DVD and Blu-ray but I'm going to be a little bit of a hypocrite here and for the purposes of this episode say that it is a rent it. Okay. If if I I think it's a buy it if you're an intense horror fan completist, you know, and you and you want to do that double feature. Uh-huh. I think that if I'm being honest with myself, this is probably a rent it. As blasphemous as that may be for hardcore horror fans. Aww. Well, I don't care about blasphemy. My feeling on two is that it's a tape over it. But I guess it has some necessary information. Especially, I guess, that one, it ups the stakes. 
and it tortures tortures Jamie Lee Curtis that much more, so you can understand why she would fake her own death in H2O, and it sets up the the siblingship between these two for H2O. But really, you could just look at a wiki article, skip the movie, and go straight to H2O and have a wonderful experience. So maybe rent it, but I really feel like tape over it. You gotta pick one. I gotta pick one, tape over it. I think that's fine. I respect you for that. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Halloween 2 is the most difficult one. And I feel, and I revisit these movies every year. I love the cinematography. Some of it's the, a beautiful opening sequence. Yeah. It's a beautiful looking movie. Jamie Lee Curtis is back. I, the soundtrack is killer. You don't really but do much with her in it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the most frustrating of these three movies, yeah. I would say. So that's why I'm going to say rent it, even though I've bought it three times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sean, H2O. This is a buy it. I think this is a return to form for the series. I think that it is of the Scream era in the best way that it can be. And I'm, you know, I'm a harsh critic on this era too, because as much as I love Scream, I know what you did last summer, our fourth episode, you might recall we both said tape over it. Yeah. I think that they just nail it with actually capitalizing on the brother-sister relationship I think it's Jamie Lee Curtis's best performance of these three movies. I think that it's just a class act mm-hmm. from top to bottom. And it just, uh, it's, I love it. It's its not as good as the first, I will say. But it's the next best thing. Except for maybe Season of the Witch. I do like <laughs> me some killer masks. Oh my god. I say buy it. This is easy for me, because I love Jamie Lee Curtis. This is her at her best. She's a total badass, and you get to see her cut his head off. So, I mean, you really get everything you want out of this movie. Yeah, and this is the final chapter, guys. There are no (laughs) movies after this. All right, well, that wraps up this trilogy. (laughs) You just love that term, don't you? Are you trying to put that on me? Because you are the... The one that put this on us all. <laughs> is it a trilogy or is it a trilogy? I guess it's a trilogy. I don't know. I guess there's more thrills than chills here. All right. Well, sadly, another spooky season is coming to an end. We're heading into November. Lindsay, it's your turn. What are we watching? We are watching Beauty and the Beast. Whoa. Because it is the 25-year anniversary of its release. I haven't seen that since I was a little kid. I am really excited. Especially the live-action version is going to be coming out. With uh, the guest. That, that... With the, of course, <laughs> your mind immediately goes to the guy in it that was in Dan a Stevens. horror movie. Dan Stevens. He's also very famous for Downton Abbey, which is what I know <laughs> He's probably from. best known for Downton Abbey. <laughs> but I like that you went to him and the guest first instead of Emma Watson, who is arguably more famous. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's definitely more famous. But there's At also... least until Dan Stevens becomes James Bond. No, I don't really see it as face yeah, is too Yeah, it probably won't happen. Yeah, his wife would be really excited, though, because she was the one that told him to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be excited if he was James Bond. All right, well, Beauty and the Beast, definitely want to tune in for that one. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song, Mandatory Groove. You can find more of his music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes on our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. You'll also be able to see a short article that Sean wrote about some movies that you might want to watch before the month is over. Oh, yeah. Something spooky. Uh, You can email us with your questions or concerns at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. You can also subscribe and rate and review on iTunes. You shouldn't have given out our email because we're going to get a lot of angry horror nerds who uh, are upset that we liked H2O more than Halloween 2. And that I said to tape over Halloween 2. Well, we're right. You're wrong. That's it for Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. Mm